Let's go ahead and uh, get started with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it's good to see the good crowd that's out here tonight uh, for the Bible study, and we just thank you for every single person that's out here. Uh, the weather is a little overcast and gloomy because of that uh, hurricane way down south that's kind of moving up our way. We'll probably get a lot of rain come this weekend, and uh, sometimes it kind of makes you feel a little bit draggy, so I appreciate everybody's uh, effort to uh, be out here tonight and uh, uh, fighting fatigue in order to uh, consume the Word of God. And so, Lord, I ask that you just honor each and every individual that's here tonight, that you would just open up our hearts and open up our minds to your Word. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. May your Holy Spirit lead, guide, and direct our thinking and our understanding and our processing and assimilation of the Word. And more importantly, uh, afterwards, uh, after we walk out these doors, that uh, we'll not only be able to assimilate it and process it within ourselves, but we'll be able to apply it and we'll be able to live it. Because what's the point of studying the Word of God if we don't work to live it out in our own lives? It just serves no purpose but intellectual exercise, and that only takes you so far. This is your instruction manual for our lives so that we could live uh, successfully, physically, mentally, and spiritually in this world. And uh, we want to please you. We want to honor you. We want to glorify you by our lives. We want uh, the witness of our life and how we carry ourselves to be a great witness to the outside world and to others that they can look at us and know that there's something different about us and know that there's a peace about us, a joy about us that the world can't give. Um, it reminds me of what Jesus said, uh, you know, peace I give unto you, not as the world give, give, give I unto you. And so let not our heart be troubled or let it be afraid. And, and uh, we thank you for your peace. And your peace only comes through obedience of your word. And we know that when we obey your word, we live it out, that there's blessings that come along with it. And uh, blessings can sometimes seem a little vague, but I like how Deuteronomy puts it, that these blessings will overtake you. These blessings through obedience will tackle us. They can't help but find us and fall upon us. And that's a great way to think of, of blessing. Um, it kind of reminds me of... Uh, you know, coming home and all the nieces and nephews just come running up and tackling you because they're so glad to see you. That's the way blessing is, is when we are blessed and we obey the word of God, it's just we get dogpiled by blessings. And uh, Lord, we love you. We praise you. Lord, forgive us of our sins and our failures and our shortcomings and help us to be and do all that you want us and have us to and lead, guide and direct us in the way that you would have us to go. For we ask and pray these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Trust in the Lord with all your and lean not but in all your ways and he will there you go we don't have to have a quiz you guys know those verses you guys are doing great so let's jump right in hopefully Lord willing we'll be able to finish Proverbs tonight so we're gonna be starting with verse 27 so I'm gonna read 27 and 28 because they kind of go together so Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. It says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Does, that, does those two verses remind you of any other passage in the Scripture? Huh? Right, yeah. 
So it does remind you of, of, a, of a parable that Jesus said, does it not? So let's turn to Luke chapter 11. And, you know, who knows, maybe Jesus, maybe Yeshua was drawing upon this very proverb when he formulated this, uh, this, this little story, this little parable. So Luke chapter 11, starting with verse 5. So let me read those two verses again. We'll jump right into Luke. So, you'll, you know, it'll be fresh. Do not withhold good from those whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it. So jumping to Luke chapter 11, starting with verse 5. And he, being Yeshua, Jesus, said to them, Suppose one of you shall have a friend and shall go to him at midnight. I don't like that verse. <laughs> I don't want anybody coming to me at midnight. <laughs> I'm, I'm in bed. I'm asleep. I don't want anybody to bother me. And I'm, I'm an early to bed, early to rise. Some of you guys are night owls. Mm -mm, not me. I mean, I'm in bed by 8 o'clock, up by 4, sometimes earlier. That's true. So suppose one of you shall have a friend and shall go to him at midnight and say to him, uh, friend, friend, lend me three loaves. So he's just asking for some bread. Verse 6, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he shall answer and say, don't bother me. The door is already shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot give up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up, and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. <laughs> so there's something to be said about persistence. It doesn't matter if somebody is a friend or a relative or how close you are. Come back tomorrow. I'm in bed. All the children are in bed. The doors are locked. But because keeps knocking at the door and won't stop knocking at the door. Well, my goodness, I'm going to get out of bed just so this guy will shut up and leave me alone and quit knocking on my door. Here's your three loaves, go. So he got what he wanted, whether it was through friendship or through his persistence, he got what he wanted. And so when we read Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 and 28, that's exactly what that reminded me of, is that parable that Jesus said right there. So it says, do not withhold good from those whom it is due. Now, it's interesting, from those whom it is due is an interesting word. It's a word that you probably wouldn't expect. It's the Hebrew word Baal or Baal. Now, a lot of times we think of Baal as a false god, but Baal was actually a generic title or term for a deity. Just like the word Elohim, God, is a generic term. It's just a title. So you can, you can apply the word Elohim to you know, the God of Israel or to the God of the Moabites or the Ammonites or the Philistines because Elohim is just a generic uh, word for God. So there's a capital G-O-D, which when we capitalize God, we know we're automatically talking about the one true God of Israel. When it's a lowercase g, it's talking about all these little false gods. So it's the same with the word Baal or Baal, um, even though it is used as a name for one of the uh, gods, uh, Baal, capital B. It's also used with a little b to designate um, just a generic title or a generic term because the word Baal or Baal can mean Lord or husband. So it is talking about 
uh, someone in authority to whom it is due. You know, respect and honor to whom it is due. What Remember what Jesus said, render unto Caesars what is Caesars and render unto God's what is God's. Give every person their due. And even in, in the later passages of the Brit Hadesha, the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul says that, that uh, you know, somebody who labors in the word is worthy of his hire. You know, don't withhold good from those whom it is due. And so that's exactly what this says here in Proverbs. Do not withhold good from uh, to whom those uh, from those to whom it is due when it is in your power when it is in your power to do it so this is almost saying that that and this kind of um, touches on other passages in the new testament and as well as the old testament where we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, we where we are to prefer other people above ourselves we are to make sure that somebody else's needs are met really before our needs are met, that we're per- we are to prefer others before ourselves. And this is what Solomon is saying uh, to his sons, who's going to be future judges and ambassadors and kings and rulers and authorities. That's kind of backwards in our day because people who are in authority, you know, they, they want their ego stroked. You know, they, they, they want people to pay them due respect and due diligence, and they demand it. And if they don't, you'll get penalized for, you know, you disrespect, or, or if a police officer thinks you're disrespecting him, you know, you could get in trouble. You can get a ticket. Um, you, you have uh, dictators and despots ruling countries. If they think that you've disrespected them in any way, shape, or form, they could have your head. You know, classic example, North Korea. I mean, this this Kim Jong Il guy uh, pretty much killed off uh, his uncle and his brother and other family because they were a threat and they he felt like they weren't respecting him. So this verse is telling Solomon's sons to respect others, even though that you're a king or that you're a ruler, you have authority. You're you should treat other people with respect. Treat other people as if they were a king or if they were a ruler, because when you treat other people that way, it's going to come back to you. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You want to be treated with respect? Respect other people. And for those that have been in education, one thing that I really appreciate about the old school educators is I really appreciated it when a teacher called me Mr. Shoemaker. I was just a kid. I mean, here I am, 12 years old, 13 years old. I was just a little kid. And yet my teacher was calling me Mr. Shoemaker. Not because he was sucking up to me or trying to butter me up, but he was trying to teach me respect. And as he respected me, he, he expected that respect back in return. Oh, certainly Mr. Klein, or certainly Mr. Swayze, whoever my teacher was that particular year. But I appreciated that because that really instilled within me to be able to respect other people and to respect my peers as well as those who who are older and had authority over me. And that's what Solomon is teaching his sons here, is to respect other people, even if they are lower than you on the socioeconomic ladder, or if they don't hold a title of ambassador or judge or ruler. So uh, treat everyone with respect. Treat everyone the way that you would want to be treated. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is within your power to do it when it is in with in your power to do it. I also have marked here uh, Romans 13. And I'll just read that really quickly before we move on. Romans chapter 13, verses 7 and 8. Render to all what is due. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due. 
Custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Ah, well said. Dr. Stanley always has something good to say. I really appreciate his words. Thanks for sharing that. That's that's excellent. So we even see in Romans 13, uh, verses 7 and 8, talking about rendering uh, to, to what's due to people. And I love verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone. Uh, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Well, we can't fulfill the law. It's impossible to keep. I disagree. I'm not saying that we will keep the law because we're fallen human beings, and at some point or another, we're going to sin. And sin, the definition of sin, according to 1 John 3, 4, sin is a transgression of the law. So the laws of God, the instructions of God, the 613 commandments God gave to Moses, if we break those, we're sinning. But here, Paul is trying to teach us that the fulfillment of the law is the motivation behind the law. We don't fulfill the law to escape hell. We don't fulfill the law to escape punishment from divine retribution from God. We don't fulfill the law to get brownie points with God. We fulfill the law out of an obligation of love for God. Isn't that what marriage vows are? Marriage vows are nothing more but rules, laws, and commandments. But, you know, do we we fulfill our marital vows because we're afraid if we don't that our spouse is going to get at us with a rolling pin or a frying pan, or that we're going to have to sleep on the couch or in the doghouse? No, we, we fulfill our marital vows because we love our spouse. We've agreed to abide by and obey and, and, and keep these and be faithful to these vows because of our love for our spouse. And it's interesting because the Jewish people see the law of God totally different than the Christian church. The Christian church sees the law as a bondage and, you know, something severe and something that's impossible to keep. And the only reason it was given to show us how down and dirty sinners we are and it's just impossible. But the Jewish people look at the law as marital vows. They look at it as God's vows. When God was on Sinai and said to the people of Israel, These are my expectations. These are my commandments. Will you do them? And not only Israel, but the mixed multitude with them says, yeah, we will. You are God and we will do this because of love. So they they, they see the commandments as love. And commandments are out of love. I mean, do we tell our children not to put their finger in a light socket just because we just want to rain on their parade? We, we, we get out of bed in the morning and put our feet on the ground and we're like, how can I make my child's life miserable today? What can I tell them not to do just to be a party pooper? No, we tell them not to, not to touch hot stoves or to stick their fingers in light sockets, not to pet strange dogs because we don't want to see them electrocuted, burnt, or bit. It's out of our love for them that we give them rules and regulations and boundaries. And that's the way God is. He's given us rules, regulations, and boundaries out of love because he knows what's best for us. And even though we may not totally understand why he commanded certain things, it's out of love. And there's actually a section of commandments 
that are called in the Hebrew chukim, which means that these are commandments that have no logical reason or explanation for them. And I liken it unto when, as a parent, sometimes we tell our kids, well, why? Why should I do this, Mom? Why should I do this, Dad? Because I said so. Because there's sometimes when Ariana has come up to me as a little child, and I've asked her to do something, and she says, why? And, you know, I could take the time to explain it, to explain it but even if I explain it, guess what she's going to ask? But why? So I explain it further and draw it out even more. Do you understand? Well, but why? And so it's, it'll continue to be a why. And so to save everybody from the time and the heartache and the trouble, I just say, because I told you so. You don't have to understand why. Just because I said so. But those rules and those, you know, those uh, rules and regulations we give to our children and commandments we give to our children are out of love. And even though they may not understand why we ask them to do a certain thing, uh, we have our reasons. And God is infinite. So even if he gave us an explanation to some of these mysterious commandments, we probably wouldn't understand it anyway because we're finite and he's infinite. So there is a section of commandments in the 613 commandments of the Torah that are called chukim. They're, they're commandments without logical explanations. Now we can make good educated guesses why maybe God commanded certain things, and that's fine, that's okay. Uh, but ultimately we don't know because we, we, we can't read God's mind. That's a little bunny trail, so let's get back on track so we can try to uh, finish up chapter 3 tonight. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and move on to verse 29. It says, Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives in security beside you. Do not devise. This, word, this Hebrew word, devise, this Hebrew word devise means, uh, it's also been translated as plowman. Boy, that's awful strange. Plot, okay. Yeah, that's another good word. Plowman, um, but devise also means graven, to, to engrave something. So what we, can, what we can draw from this Hebrew word devise, which has sometimes been translated as plowman or graven, is it implies labor or creation. When you sculpt something out of stone, you're making a graven image of something. You know, like, uh, like uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci in the Statue of David or whatever. Uh, it's just a slab of marble or a slab of granite, and he just chips away what's not supposed to be there, and he works to create this image. And, uh, you know, a plowman, they work the soil. They plow up the soil so something can grow. They labor. So that's the, the idea behind devise. And a plot is a very good, good translation, a good word. Do not devise. Do not plot harm. Plot, devise, means that you're premeditating, that you're, you're, that you're scheming. You know, it's just not something that you just kind of do on accident or off the cup, cuff. Oops, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. It's something that you kind of planned. So it says, do not devise or do not plot, do not work or create harm against your neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor? Yeah, that's been asked in the New Testament before. You can call that word scheme? Yeah, you can call it scheme. That's what it reminds me. Yeah, that's a, yeah it, you could translate it as scheme. So, you know, do not devise harm against your neighbor. And our neighbor is, you know, everybody else. Doesn't have to be somebody who lived, actually lives beside us. Our neighbor is our fellow man, our fellow human being. That's who our neighbor is. And Jesus uh, gave this example through the uh, story of the Good Samaritan. 
And uh, we know that uh, there was this Hebrew who was going along to Jericho, got mugged, uh, was beaten half dead and left to die, and he was robbed. And his own fellow countrymen, a Levite and a priest, walked by and just ignored him, probably because they were more concerned about their priestly duties so that they wouldn't become unclean, so that they could go to the temple and do their religious service for God. And here, a Samaritan, which was somebody that you wouldn't expect because the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along. Because remember when Jesus was at the well and the Samaritan woman came to him, his disciples were like, what's he talking to her for? But they wouldn't say anything. And even the Samaritan woman says, why are you talking to me? Jews and Samaritans don't have any relations. There was animosity between those two people, but yet it was this stereotyped, hated, half-breed Samaritan that helped this Hebrew man that was mugged and beaten. And so that's how Jesus explained to, to his own people who your neighbor is. They don't have to look like you, talk like you, dress like you, eat like you, smell like you, make the same income as you. Our neighbor is anybody who's not us. <laughs> It's our fellow man. So do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely. Now that word securely means without care. He's not even remotely thinking that you could possibly do harm to him. He's not even remotely thinking that you're plotting against him and is, and is going to somehow hurt him in some way or, or connive him or, or harm him. That's what this word secure, securely means. While he lives securely, while he lives without care, beside you. Now the word harm, do not plot or, or scheme or devise harm against your neighbor. This word harm means to cause somebody misery, grief, or misfortune. To cause misery, grief, or misfortune. So I have, I have written here kind of as a little commentary of my own. Do not betray a trust or turn on the weak, innocent, or unsuspecting. Do not pick a fight. Sometimes people will just pick a fight because they can. Because they know that they have power over you. Now this reminds me of when I was in... Bullying. Bullying, yes. That's, that's, what I, that's the point I was going to bring up. It reminds me when I was in school. Now there was this kid, and I've told this story before. He, for whatever reason, he didn't like me. I was your proverbial 90-pound wimp. I wasn't athletic. I wasn't popular. And I was just a soft and easy target. And so I think that's why the guy picked on me is because he knew he could. And I remember the day that I stood up to him. The Lord gave me the strength to stand up to him. He wanted to fight me. He had his fist up. He was just ready to go. And I put my finger right in his face and I told him that I loved him. And I told him that Jesus loved him. And I said, you can do whatever you want to me. He didn't fight me. He was my friend from that point on. So do not devise harm, do not cause grief, do not cause misfortune against your neighbor who lives without care beside you. So again, it goes back to this golden rule principle. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it's interesting, I have a poster at home and it has uh, sayings from other religions and some of their religious leaders and some of their holy books, with the exception of Satanism. Every religion has a version of the golden rule. You know, and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So it doesn't matter if it's the Baha'i faith, Islam, Native American religion, you know, whatever, uh, 
um, you know, Confucianism, Hinduism, you name it, there is a verse or there is a saying within their faith that is just identical to the golden rule. With the exception of Satanism, Satanism, their John 3.16, their golden rule is do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. That's what Anton LaVey penned in the Satanic Bible. So it's basically said, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter as long as it pleases you. Hmm? Well, Satanism says, do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. It's, it's, it, it basically do whatever you want because it doesn't matter. Who cares who you harm? Who cares who you hurt? You know, just live for yourself. Uh, okay, moving on to verse 30. It says, do not contend with a man without cause. See, when you're a ruler and you have power and authority, sometimes just for kicks, just for giggles, just for fun, you want to cause drama and just throw your weight around because you can, because you have that power and authority and you want to wield it. You know, it's, just, it's kind of like a little kid. It's like uh, the Christmas story. Ralphie wanted a BB gun. No, you can't have a BB gun. You'll shoot your eye out. But he gets a BB gun. And what's the first thing the kid wants to do when he gets a BB gun? He wants to kill a bird or a squirrel with it. That's just, you know, he has that power. He wants to wield it. You know, when, when, whenever somebody gets a sword, what's the first thing they want to do? They want a sword fight. <laughs> they want to chop something or hack something. It's because they have power and they want to use it. And there's something about our fallen nature that enjoys destruction. All you have to do is see an accident on the highway and all traffic slows down because everybody's rubbernecking. They love to see a train wreck. Sometimes people will watch reality TV only for the simple fact they want to see drama. They want to see a fight. They want to see people arguing and they want to see other people miserable. They think it's funny. That's part of our depraved human nature that enjoys that. So Solomon is warning his sons against that. He's like, don't contend with a man without cause. If you don't have any reason to fight, don't fight. If you don't have any reason to throw your authority, power, or weight around, don't do it. So... Uh, the word contend means to grapple, to wrestle, to strive. It says accuse. Yeah, do not accuse. That's that, you know, again, it's starting a fight, picking a fight. Do not contend with a man without cause. If he has done you no harm. If he has done you no harm. Yeah, strive not with a man. Yeah. Right. Struggle. Yeah, so basically just don't pick fights. <laughs> uh, so verse 31. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. Do not envy, do not be jealous of, in other words, do not be jealous of a man of violence. The word violence here means cruelty, injustice, an oppressor, unrighteous. So this word violence, with all those Hebrew definitions put together, it makes you think of a violent criminal. Why would anybody envy a violent criminal? Probably because a lot of violent criminals wear pinstripe suits. They've got a penthouse apartment. They can buy whatever they want. 
They have whatever they want. They've got a garage full of sports cars. They have a, a, a bank account full of money. They have bedrooms full of women. I mean, some people will envy a violent criminal like somebody from the mob or the mafia because not only do they have power, not only do they have fortune, but they can have whatever they want. They're like a king. But how did they get that fame? How did they get that fortune? How did they get that reputation? Through violent, nefarious means. So do not, do not envy, do not be jealous of a man of violence, of somebody who's a career criminal. Just because they, they have, you know, and, and these career criminals look like they're happy. They look like they, they have anything that they want. And maybe on the outside they do. They have whatever will, will comfort and titillate and please the flesh. But nobody knows what goes on inside this cranium here. Nobody knows what goes on behind this ribcage in somebody's heart. That career criminal could be miserable. And he's trying to make himself happy with drugs and alcohol and women and money and power and violence. And nothing satisfies. So why are we to envy them just because they have everything that looks like it's set for life on the outside? On the inside, they're probably miserable. And it's funny because you see a lot of famous people. Oh, man, everybody wants to be famous. When, when people are younger, you know, and they say, what do you want to be when you grow up? If it's not a fireman or a police officer or a doctor, it's I want to be, I want to be a rock star. I want to be a famous athlete. I want to be a movie star. I want to be famous. But yet time and time again, Fame does not bring happiness. A lot, of these, a lot of these famous people have mental problems. All we got to do is watch the news and hear them commentate on politics, and you can see how crazy they really are. But, you know, they're sad. They're lonely. They're miserable. And nothing pleases them. And a lot of them, especially if they get, young, uh, uh, if they get famous while they're young, their life is ruined. All you got to do is look at Macaulay Culkin, the kid who played Home Alone. Uh, you, you look at Miley Cyrus. You look at all these who started out young, Ariana Grande. Where are they now? They may have fame and fortune and recognition, but their lives are a train wreck. And Jim Carrey, fellow Canadian, he, he, he's, he, he's, he, I can't remember the exact quote, but he's like, I wish everybody could, could be famous just so they can understand that they're not going to be happy just because they're famous. And... Jim Carrey has, has, has dealt with uh, mental illness for a long time. And a lot of these famous people have mental illness. Just because they're famous doesn't mean that they're happy. So just because, it, it, here we could say, do not envy a famous person. Just as it says, do not envy a, a man of violence. Now, when I first read this verse, do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. You know, the, the first thing I immediately thought of was Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Lou Ferrigno, Chuck Norris, Jean-Claude Van Damme, all these, uh, Bruce Willis, all these guys who are considered action heroes because they play these tough guys in the movie that get the job done. It reminds me of a little joke. <laughs> okay, you know, you know the generic toilet paper. We've all used it, you know, you just go into any gas station or any, you know, place. It's, it's just that, that one ply, it's like sandpaper, right? Yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's no-name toilet paper. Well, somebody come out one time 
And uh, they, they were in this, I don't know if it was a restaurant or a grocery store or wherever, they were using a public restroom and they come out to the manager and says, you know that toilet paper you use? Yeah, well, I got a name for it. What do you want to name it? I'm going to call it John Wayne. John, John Wayne? How dare you call a roll of toilet paper John? Why would you call a roll of toilet paper John Wayne? Because it's rough and it's tough and it don't take no crap from no one. <laughs> So, verse 31, do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. It made me think of all these action heroes I grew up watching in the movies. And when I was little and I was watching them, I wanted to be like them because they were strong and nobody could beat them. And they were always defeating bad guys and they always got what they wanted and they always got their way and they always saved the girl. But they were men of violence. And it says, do not choose any of their ways. Why? Why? Because if you choose their ways, you're going to end up like them. You may have fame and fortune and reputation and status on the outside, but you're going to be miserable on the inside. Because the wages, the payment, the reward of sin is death. So, you know, whatever, whatever is not of God, whatever is not of Scripture, whatever is not of the Holy Spirit, whatever is not of Yeshua is of death because it's of the other side. It's of the world. And it's not going to, to give you what you want. It's not going to please you. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. There's another proverb that says, don't make friends with an angry man lest you learn his ways. You, you hang around with tough guys. You hang around with, with snobby, famous people. You hang around with people that abuse power and authority. You're going to, it's going to rub off on you. Bad company corrupts good morals. Just a little example. There was only two houses in my neighborhood growing up. It was my house and our neighbor's house. And our neighbors were black. And uh, their grandchildren came over, and we would play all the time. So it would be a weekend, and you know, we, you know, there would be Tina and Marcus and Pooh. That was his nickname. Everybody called him Pooh. And we would play, and we would spend the whole day together. And guess what happened by the end of the day? I was talking like them. Not because I was trying to make fun of them, not because I was trying to be racist or whatever, but because I was hanging around them, and they were the majority their speech, their accent rubbed off on me, and by the end of the day, I was talking like they were. And that's a good example of, you know, who you, that's why it's so important to choose good friends and to choose who you hang out with. Because whoever you hang out with, you're, they're going to rub off on you. And have you ever heard of the term guilty by association? You may be a good righteous egg, but if you're hanging out with bad people, and they get caught doing something wrong just because you're hanging out with them, they're going to say, oh, well, he's one of them too. Huh. He claims to be a Christian and look at him, right? Not saying that you can't be friends with these people because we want to win them to the Lord, but you, you can't be, be intimate, buddy, buddy, rub elbows with them and hang out with them because they don't hang out at the same places you do. <laughs> they don't have the same morals and values that you do. But yeah, you should be friends with them in order to win them over because even Jesus was a friend of sinners, right? So do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. Verse 32. For the crooked, for the crooked man is an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. Now, um, I noticed that the New American Standard Bible probably went through a couple revisions because this one says crooked, but the one that I uh, looked at online 
uh, said devious. So I guess the word crooked could also mean devious. But this word crooked or devious or whatever uh, translation that you have, uh, it also means to be perverted or to be twisted. Perverse, okay, it's probably the King James has perverse. So that's another good translation. For the crooked, the devious, the twisted, the perverse man is an abomination. Now that word abomination is, is a pretty intense word. Sin is bad enough, right? But abomination is kind of a level that's above everyday run-of-the-mill regular sin. Okay, thou shalt not steal, steal. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, all the Ten Commandments, right? Not do those. God never called any of those an abomination. But yet, let's take adultery, for instance. That's sin. That's bad. Why is that a run-of-the-mill sin? Because we have a fallen nature and we lust after another woman or another man that's not our spouse. Right? And so, things happen and, you know, it's sin. But yet... When you take that fornication, you take that adultery, you take it to the next level, and you, you commit homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality, those God deemed an abomination. Why is it an abomination? Because it's against God's natural order. It's natural for a man and woman to hook up and get together, even if the person's not your spouse or whatever. Yeah, that's sin, but that's not an abomination because man and woman are supposed to come together. So that's just a regular run-of-the-mill sin. But if you elevate that sin to homosexuality, lesbianism, or bestiality, God forbid, it becomes a to'eva, is what the Hebrew says, which is an abomination, which means God totally hates it and loathes it because it is going against God's creative, created order. Is it, there a mark in uh, Moncton for the, for the uh, well, man with man and women with women? Yeah. They, they, were, they were running the church down because it said the church was taking people in the wrong direction and giving them bad, um, giving them nerve problems because they were, that wasn't normal. Those nerve problems we would call conviction because God, through the Holy Spirit, will convict somebody of wrong. And if you don't obey God and listen to his Holy Spirit, you are going to have nerve problems because you're going against God. Yeah, that's what I thought. But yeah. I didn't know that anybody would be that. Well, and Isaiah said, woe to them who call good evil and evil good. What we are calling good in our world and society today, 50 years ago, was an abomination. It wasn't just a sin. It was an abomination. It was criminalized. And yet today, oh, it's good. It's normal. Let everybody choose their own path as long as they're not hurting anybody else. But that's for the crooked man is an abomination to the Lord. To the Most High God, notice Lord is in all capital letters, which is designating God's Hebrew proper Hebrew name. For the crooked man is an abomination, more than just sin, he's, it's an abomination. because Why? Because he's perverted, because he's twisted. Right? It's one thing to kind of backslide. It's one thing to kind of go off the path and deviate. But it's another thing to be crooked and twisted. Have you ever taken uh, one of those metal coat hangers and unraveled it? And have you ever tried to put it back together? It's darn near impossible because you've already twisted it and you've made it crooked and you've perverted it. It's like a paperclip. You can't get a paperclip back in its original state after you've bent it apart. 
And that's what this word crooked means. It's twisted and bent and perverted to where it, you can't get it back to its normal state. For the crooked man, and you know, you might think of a crooked man as somebody who is a reprobate. Because the Apostle Paul talks about people that go so far in their sin and refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit and refuse to listen to the voice of God. And God says, I'm giving them over to a reprobate mind. Their conscience has been seared. They can't blush anymore. They, they don't know how to be shamed anymore. I've turned them over to a reprobate mind. Their consciousness is seared. They, 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 they can do no wrong in their own eyes. That's what a crooked man is, and that's why a crooked man is an abomination to the Lord, is because they've, 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 become, they've given themselves over to a reprobate mind. But he, uh, the second part of this verse says, but he is intimate with the upright. Now that word, uh, that word intimate, um, it mean, another word for it, intimate, means secret counsel. Confidence, okay, confidence, like, okay, when we think of the word confidence, some, uh, we think of, uh, there's two different definitions for confidence. Like, uh, I have confidence that I'm, I can slam dunk that ball. I have confidence that I could do it. Or, um, hey, um, I want to tell you something, but I want to tell you in confidence. Meaning, don't tell anybody else. It's just between me and you. So that's an interesting, what version is that? Do you, okay, the NIV says confidence. But he is confidence with the upright, has confidence. So to be intimate, the New American Standard Bible says intimate. And so it, it means secret counsel. And, you know, I kind of picture two close, intimate friends kind of sitting on the couch having a private, intimate conversation. That's kind of the, that, that's what I, that's the way I see it. And that's, that's, what, that's what this is all about. This is what our faith is all about. The world calls it a religion, but I don't like that word to describe the, the, what I have with my God. What I have with my God is, goes beyond religion. Religion is formulation. It's do's and don'ts. It's, 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 it's custom, tradition, man-made. But what I have with God is a personal and intimate relationship. And the only way I can have a personal and intimate relationship with God is through His Son, Christ Jesus, Messiah Yeshua. He's the mediator between God and man. Because in the beginning, because of Adam's sin, we inherited what, what some people call the sin disease. Because Adam sinned, and it's interesting because Eve was deceived, but Adam chose to sin. Because a lot of times you get this impression that Eve was there by herself and she got duped by the lie of the devil. But it says she, gave, she took the fruit and gave to Adam who was with her. Adam was right there. He heard what Eve was listening to from the devil. And yet he said nothing, he did nothing, he just went right along with it. Eve was deceived, Adam chose to sin, and because Adam chose to sin, and because we all come from Adam, just like DNA, we inherit things from our parents, we inherited that sin. That's why he's called the first Adam. And Jesus is the last Adam because, guess what? God is his father. Not some sinful fallen human being, but God is his father, so he doesn't have a sin nature. So he's the last Adam, and his, his goal is to bring us back into that right relationship with God that Adam and Eve had before the fall. And so when sin entered the world, that, 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 that relationship was broken. A wedge was put between them. 
God could no longer come down and walk with them personally in the cool of the day. Their relationship was severed, and God left them with a promise, Genesis 3.15, the, the proto-evangelium, that you know, God uh, will, will bring a redeemer through the seed of the woman, and that seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. I'm paraphrasing there. I'm not quoting it exactly, but you know what I'm talking about. So, uh, okay, but he is intimate with the upright. So we have intimacy with God through Messiah Yeshua, through Jesus Christ. So verse 33, okay, verse 33, the curse of the Lord is on the house, and that word house uh, is not a physical building, but a household. You know, used to, families were called houses. You know, mine would be the house of Shoemaker, you know, or, or whatever, whatever last name would be the house of whatever. And even in Star Trek, you know, one of my favorite characters is the Klingon Worf. You know, he is, he is Worf, son of Moog, of the house of, you know, whatever. You know, so that's what it means. The, cur the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. So it doesn't mean just an individual is cursed. It can mean that, uh, that everybody connected with that house is cursed. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. And let me see, do I have anything here to commentate on that? All right. But he blesses, and the word blesses in the Hebrew means praised greeting. They are greeted with praise. But he is blessed. But he blesses the dwelling or the habitation, the fold or the stable. It implies community. It's basically another way of saying house, household. But he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. And Deuteronomy 20, 27 and 28 talk about the curses of disobeying God's word and the blessings of obeying God's word. So disobedience equals curse and death. Obedience equals blessing and life. Very simply put, very simple equation. Okay, moving on to verse 34. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, Yet he gives grace to the afflicted. In other words, he gives people exactly what they dish out to others. And again, we, we kind of go back to that golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Though he, he scoffs at the scoffers, if people are scoffing and dishing out mockery and dishing out derision and dishing out grief and pain on other people, God's going to dish that back out to them. They're going to, you, you reap what you sow. If I plant an apple seed in the ground, I'm going to get an apple tree, not a banana tree or a rubber tree plant. You reap what you sow. So if you sow scoffing, if you're all, all the time scoffing at somebody else and, and you're making fun of them and putting them down and gossiping about them, well, the same thing is going to come back on you some way, somehow, some shape or form. Though he scoffs at the scoffer, he gives grace to the afflicted. God is a champion of those that are the underdog, of the afflicted, of the widow, of the orphan, of those who have been dealt a bad hand. He gives grace. And the word grace means favor. He gives favor to the afflicted. The afflicted here actually means to be impoverished. It implies a low social standing. He gives grace or favor to the afflicted. All right. Okay, verse 35. We're, yeah, we're going to make it tonight. 
Verse 35, the wise will inherit honor, but the fools display dishonor. So the wise will inherit. That word inherit means to obtain by descent. So it's kind of passed down from father to son, from generation to generation. The wise will inherit honor. You know, sometimes, sometimes you get treated well because of who your father was or who your relatives were. Because your father may have had a good name in the community. I remember people say, well, well, well whose son are you? Well, I'm the son of Bill Shoemaker. Oh, yes, he, he ran the service station. Oh, he always treated me right and did me right. You know, he always took good care of my car and was very friendly when it pumped the gas. And so who you know kind of goes a long way. So if, you're, if your ancestors were wise, not necessarily mean that you'll be wise, but you can, might inherit that good reputation of that family. And it's up to you to keep that good reputation going. The wise will inherit honor. The word honor means uh, uh, glory, splendor. Uh, it, 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 it means weight. And so it kind of, uh, it kind of um, implies royalty. It implies royalty. The wise will inherit honor, but the fools display dishonor. Display means to raise high, but fools display dishonor. Holds up to shame. We talked earlier about how people don't blush anymore. We don't have any remorse or regret or shame. But we get nervous because, because somebody said that my lifestyle is not approving. It's conviction, <laughs> right? It's called conviction. And we see people just displaying their dishonor in these parades, these pride parades, if you will. They're displaying dishonor. You know, it, it, I, I, I've asked the question, okay, you have these LBGTQ pride parades. Why don't we have an adultery parade? Why, why don't we praise that and just, you know, if nothing is sacred anymore and, and everybody can do what they want, why don't we praise that? It's kind of the same thing. And it's really sad. Fools display dishonor. And we see that over and over on TV and in movies and in our society and in politics and in the news. They're displaying dishonor. They're holding high the banner of their foolishness. And what is foolishness? Going against what's best for you. Even our prime minister was Yeah? Just as though he approved. That didn't look good to me. No, it, it doesn't. And it doesn't bode well for our country. The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's another, that's another scripture. So if there's no God, then that means there's no rules. And if there's no rules, it means I can do whatever I want. There's no right or wrong. And it's funny that people who are atheist and agnostic and who don't believe in God, they still have rules. When I run into somebody like that, you know, and they say, well, you know, what's right for you may not be right for me, and what's wrong for you may not be wrong for me. I say, okay, I get that. Pull out a gun, put it to their head. Give me all your money or I'll blow your brains out. Well, you can't do that. Well, why not? There's no God. There's no right or wrong. 
Well, that's wrong. Everybody knows that killing's wrong. Really? It's not wrong for me. I don't see it's wrong. I mean, it's, it's, it's Darwinism. It's survival of the fittest. I have a gun. You don't. Therefore, I'm more fit to survive than you. Give me your money or I'm going to end you. See how contradictory that is? It's called moral relativism, where you just kind of pick and choose a smorgasbord of what's right and what's wrong, and you just customize your own morality. But see, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I believe, I know there is a God. And because he is a, a and, and every, what is he above all things? He's holy. holy, yes. Because he's a holy God means that he's loving, he's just, he's fair. We have a benevolent, loving, holy God. And because he is God, he created us. He has the right to give us the rules of what's right and is what's wrong. And again, a chukim, we may not totally understand his rules or why he gave them, but we know they're for our best because he loves us. He loved us enough to send his son to die for us, to, to reconnect us with himself, to, to mend that broken relationship from the garden. So God has the right to, get to, to give us what's right and wrong. And if we go against his, his instructions and his laws and his commandments, that makes us a fool. Because God did not give us any rules that, you know, that, that don't benefit us somehow. He, he did it for our own good. So when we go against God, we become fools. We become foolish and we display and, and wave our foolish banner because we think we know more than God. We think we're, we're evolving, we're progressive, but it's really foolishness because when we start going down the path of our own desires, we just, em, we just end up miserable and empty and shattered because nothing satisfies or fulfills us except for God and obeying his word. It's the best life for us. The wise will inherit honor, but the fools display dishonor or they raise high dishonor. Okay, we'll go ahead and close her up for tonight. We've made it through chapter 3, and we'll begin chapter 4 next week. So let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the richness of your word. We thank you, Lord, that, that we serve you, that, that we, can, we, we can not only call you God, but we can call you our Father. No other religion makes that claim. All the other incarnations of God is God is so above and beyond us and so far beyond us. We can't even know him because he's so far above us. But Lord, you came down to earth through your son, Messiah Yeshua, and connected us back to yourself. And because you created us and you loved us, you made us a little lower than the angels. You, you say that we can, we can come boldly before your throne of grace and we can call you Abba, which is Hebrew for daddy. We can call you Father. There's, there's 99 names for God in Islam. Not one of them is love and not one of them is Father. But yet those are two of my most favorite names, Lord, to call you, is that you are my Father and that you are love. You are the very definition of love. And we know that you laid out these commandments and instructions in your word. And as we're reading here in Proverbs, uh, these are good, wise words that we can apply to our life to draw us closer to you and make us better people and make our lives happier and better, and that we're blessed when we do these things. It's not to be a party pooper or to rain our, on our parade or just to wield some sort of manipulative power over us. You do it because, we, because you love us and you know what's best for us. 
Father, we love you and we praise you. We exalt you and we lift you high. We thank you for everything you've done for us and everything you've given us. We thank you for meeting with us here tonight and having your Holy Spirit move and work within our hearts and in our minds. And Lord, help us as we carry out this word from these four walls. Help us to be able to chew and digest and ruminate on your word uh, throughout the week and be able to apply it to our lives. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thanks, everyone.